Well, the one announcement I know about, the others you've gotten in an email, two announcements actually. The uh, fall courses, registration for the fall courses for Chafer Seminary began August the 1st, which is next Monday. And there are a variety of good courses. Uh, I think a good Bible study methods and hermeneutics course, the hermeneutics course is being taught this semester. And then, let me see, that's, um, uh, that will be live, okay? So some courses are pre-recorded. Other courses have a live instructor in more ways than one. Um, survey of Genesis to Ruth, Wisdom Literature, covered by Dr. Uh, Clay Ward, and also a um, pre-recorded course on uh, intertestamental history and the Gospels. Then uh, uh, Jeremy Thomas is covering Acts and the Epistles of Paul. Got beginning Greek and intermediate Greek and advanced Greek, so that's three years' worth of Greek, and also uh, beginning uh, Hebrew, and then uh, uh, theology course and the Christian framework with Charlie Clough and then a dispensationalism course by, by Jeremy. So th- those are all good courses, good to uh, take those. And then I just had a package sitting up here when I got here and uh, is contained brochures, which are now out in the fellowship hall for this year's pre-trib conference. Now, pre-trib is open to anybody, so if you want to learn and, and go through uh, some of these, this material, it's never live streamed because the hotel does not have adequate uh, internet for just being there, okay? So much less live streaming. So we don't do any live streaming. Um, some of the speakers are Dr. Andy Woods. I mean, that you would know Jeff Kinley's back from last year. Uh, says here Ed Heinsohn is going to give devotions, but I don't think he's going to come back from heaven to do that. Um, Ed went to be with the Lord about three weeks ago and was have, had uh, always had some heart problems since he had his, a huge accident about 10 or 12 years ago. Steve Sullivan is going to be uh, speaking on a survey of second, of, uh, second coming of Christ events in Isaiah. Uh, Gary Gramacki on the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And... Um, then there are several others as well. So I would uh, encourage you that if you'd like to go up to Dallas for two or three days, it's a great time to meet other believers who are like-minded. And the keynote speaker for the banquet is Dr. Mark Bailey, who is now the Chancellor of Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. He was uh, 19 years as the uh, fifth president of, of Dallas Seminary. So Mark will be speaking and... Um, that should be good. Okay, so uh, that is it for the only announcements I can think of. Uh, we have sent some announcements out, I think, around the third weekend, 22nd of October is going to be the church picnic. And then we've got some things in December with Christmas, and you can look at that email and get those dates and uh, be sure you're prepared um, for those things. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. 
Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, make sure we are walking by the Spirit, that we're in right relationship with the Lord so the Holy Spirit can help us to understand God's Word and its implications and application to our own thinking and our own lives. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for you to confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us such a wonderful opportunity in the world today to be witnesses to, for you. Uh, we have so much going on that is so antithetical to truth. We have people who are making up their own truth and people living as if it is actually true. And it is a great illustration of what happens when a, when a people turn their back on you and try to be God and create their own reality. And Father, we pray that we might be able to uh, graciously and kindly, reflecting uh, your grace toward them and toward all of us, be witnesses, shine as lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. We pray for our nation. We pray for the upcoming election, that believers will understand biblical truth and apply it in their evaluation and choice of those they will vote for, and that we may uh, have a major shift in this country. took us over 100 years to get here, and it'll take a long time to recover if you're kind enough to us to give us that opportunity. We pray for that. Now, fathers, we study judges. We pray that you'd help us to see how the things that happened so many times in Israel are just, were just precursors to what we see going on around us today and that we can be faithful and stand firm for your truth uh, even though there will be much opposition. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I think in the last uh, two or three days somebody asked me, well, how in the world did we get into this mess? I mean, you need to study Judges. It all spiritual. It all just comes down to the fact that people rejected the absolutes of God, the absolutes of Scripture, and decided to make themselves the ultimate reference point in their life, uh, the ultimate source of truth and the ultimate source of values and morals. And what that ends up creating is a purely antinomian culture. When you, when human beings make themselves the ultimate source of right and wrong, and each individual is making himself the arbiter of what and determiner of what is right and wrong, then you have every individual has become another deity, and they're all in conflict with each other. And when you get all of that happening, you basically create in the human sphere the war of the gods, little g. And that's what we see today. It, 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 and the sin natures are exploding. Uh, 
absolutely exploding uh, in reaction to what is going on because when you can't achieve what you want to achieve and what they want to achieve is a world that is ideal, utopic, that is perfect, and by that they mean they can do whatever they want to without consequences, that they can do whatever they want to do and call it whatever they wish to call it and be whatever they want to be, and they really can't. And ultimately they they will be mugged by reality. And when that happens, the reaction is anger. And you see it spill over in so many ways today. The anger that is uh, that is dividing this country and the hostility. I read a sad and tragic survey two weeks ago that said that 50% of Americans think that we're headed for a civil war. That's what happened during the time of the judges, and we'll get to that by the end of the book. But when everybody has as... Uh, dead set on their view of right and wrong and reacting in the ways that they have reacted in the last few years, it just gets worse, and we have to be prepared, and the only way we can be prepared is spiritually. Uh, God doesn't promise us that we'll get through times like that unscathed, but we will have to face those those times because we live in the in the world, but we are not of the world. And as Jesus said, that the world hated him, and the world will also hate us, but that he has given us his joy, and that he has given us the spiritual tools to be able to live and survive with joy and happiness, even when, uh, as it were, Rome is burning to the ground around us. And we have to learn not to put our eyes on the storm, not to put our eyes on uh, the collapse of civilization. And I've been doing some reading in the last uh, week or so on the fall of Rome. And in the 5th century, when Alaric the Hun came down the Italian peninsula and sacked Rome, it was an event that reverberated throughout the Mediterranean world and all of Europe. It was the kind of event like the assassination of John F. Kennedy or the explosion of the Challenger or 9-11 that you knew exactly where you were when you heard that Rome fell because no one believed that that could ever happen. And it shook people. Jerome Jerome, who was the translator of the Vulgate, and he uh, lived in the church of the of the uh, Nativity in Bethlehem, which is where he was uh, tr- doing his translation work from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. When he heard the news, he could not eat or sleep for a week. It was such a shock. But Rome did not fall because Alaric led his horde of uh, barbarians down the, the uh, peninsula of Italy, it fell because of internal moral rot. And once you lose the values of, of I mean, the real eternal values, once you lo- lose virtue and the concept, the, the historic concept of virtue, not the current Virtue is one of those words that the left has perverted. A lot of words 
They have to be very careful today because there's a lot of words that had a good historic meaning, but they don't anymore. Virtue today defines that a person is able to do exactly what they want to do. And it's personal, and it's individual, and it's all related to self-fulfillment. And so the historic concept of virtue was that it was character. It was someone who had great moral standards and values and lived accordingly. And morality is not the same as spirituality, but spirituality includes morality. And without morality, because that's related to the divine, uh, divine institutions, without morality, this nation cannot survive. That was stated in one way or another by almost every founding father. John Adams is the one whose quote on that is most frequently repeated because he said this constitution was made for a moral people. And when, when people are self-absorbed and operating on arrogance, then they are pursuing what they think is right, and that will always degenerate into immorality, which they will call morality. When you look at what is going on today in the area of uh, gender identity and reassignment of gender and how that's being forced into schools, and when you look at how uh, many other areas, uh, areas related to race, the most racist people in this country are those who are um, promoting the teaching of anti-racism. Because anti-racism says that all white people are automatically racist and they are the ones that have white privilege and have brought about all the troubles in this world. That's just a bull-faced lie. And that doesn't mean that there aren't white racists, but it does mean that there are black racists and there are uh, red-skinned racists and there are yellow-skinned racists and there are racists of every ethnicity and every religion uh, that we know about. And to say that there aren't is just an example of how your values have been turned inside out and you can't think in terms of absolutes anymore. And this subjectivity is what is so destructive and it generates more and more anger and resentment. And that's what we see in our passage that we're uh, studying in Judges chapter uh, 8. It sees this breakdown in the culture because of, of uh, paganism. And there is this resurgence of paganism. We, we thought we had hope with Gideon as we see his uh, improvement in Judges chapter, chapter 6. He comes to have confidence in God finally. After God restates his promise five or six times and even... Uh, condescends to uh, keep the ground dry and the fleece wet and then the fleece dry and the ground wet and he'll uh, go along with all of uh, Gideon's silly little tests and because that just shows the grace of God and he condescends to each one of us all the time. So we can't look at Gideon and say, oh, he was really a mess. 
But then we see his confidence when he leads the 300 in victory over the Midianite coalition. And God, of course, is the one that really wins the battle because God's the one who turns them against each other as soon as they uh, hear the uh, pottery clash and break. And as soon as they see the torches suddenly uh, uh, lighten the uh, surrounding hills, making them think that there are tens of thousands of soldiers. And uh, Gideon has confidence in God, but it doesn't last long that that uh, absence of paganism uh, falls apart fairly quickly. And that is what we see uh, illustrated in Judges chapter 8. Because in Judges chapter 8, what we see is the writer is returning us back to the main theme, and that is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, repeated twice in Judges, Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25. And it is rare that you have a verse in Scripture that is repeated word for word. There is a proverb that is repeated word for word and in Proverbs twice. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That fits right into everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Every human being has their own idea of what ought to be right and the way things ought to be. And what we have to do is learn to submit to the authority of God, even if at times we don't quite understand why it is right. But it goes against the grain of so many people. And we see a culture in open rebellion against God. But thank God we have a lot of believers and believers who are in excellent positions of leadership and they are making good and wise decisions and they're doing what they can they are some are in washington some are in austin some are in other state capitals they are in the military but they have a tough tough situation i have recently had a conversation with a friend i don't want to mention any names you would all know who he is he's retired and he was um, uh, had a position in the Air Force, and his son went to, uh, had a career in the Air Force and retired about uh, maybe eight or nine, ten years ago, and w- uh, now works in the Pentagon. And he was in the Pentagon in a couple of different meetings recently, briefings given to third and fourth star generals. And I asked a question that that got to him, and I said. Is it conceivable that we have any generals that are warriors and not woke? And he said, I don't think so. Because it's a political appointment. And that's been going on ever since there was a purge during the Clinton years. And we saw fewer and fewer. And I've talked to many um, you know, high-ranking officers over the years who have recognized what was going on. And so this is, this is a major problem. But uh, he gave a great example of the lack of ability to think clearly at this high level. He was uh, asked the question and, was a, and it was more than a question. It was 
the question in the form of, of um, uh, not it, it wasn't an order because he's a civilian, but it was that sort of thing. This is what the military wanted to do, and so they're looking at our support to Ukraine. And, of course, you know that one of the things that gave the Ukrainians a lot of victories at the beginning in dealing with tanks was the Javelin anti-tank weapon system that was uh, developed by U.S. And, and made by U.S. technology. And so in this meeting, uh, he was pointedly asked, well, why do you say that we cannot uh, manufacture more of these uh, Javelin systems? We need them, and we need them now. Why, can't, why do you say we can't do that? He said, well, first of all, the... Uh, company that built the Javelin system is retooled because we haven't need, needed those. We haven't been in a um, in a war of uh, conventional war in a long time, so we've been making and manufacturing weapon systems uh, necessary for fighting in Afghanistan and and in uh, Syria and Middle East, but we need needed something different. Uh, and so the companies that made the Javelin it doesn't it has retooled to make other things and not only that but the component parts who knows how many component parts are there the component parts are made by different smaller companies those smaller companies aren't making those component parts anymore because there's no demand for them so they're making other things and then we have this microchip problem and that not only affects whether or not you can go buy certain new cars right now, but it also affects whether or not uh, we can uh, build certain weapon systems because they, they have the same supply chain problem. And so he said, if we started today, it will be four years. According to the, the manufacturers, he said it will be four years before we can have our f first uh, Javelin anti-tank weapon system come off the um, come off the assembly line. See, there's a failure to think about the future in a clear, rational way. People are more concerned with having transgender policies in the military and being woke and uh, political correctness and all of these other things. And uh, recently when I was at the um, uh, uh, Christian, uh, uh, the National Association of Christian Legislators, uh, one of the men there that was sitting at our, my table at, at uh, one of the lunches was talking about two West Point uh, cadets, black West Point cadets who did not want to go along with woke policy, and they were dismissed from the United States Military Academy. So we have this, what, this, this relativism of our day is as deeply entrenched in our culture, as it is, as Baalism and the fertility religions were in the ancient world. And pe the only ultimate solution is people coming to truth and understanding the Word of God and being able to uh, talk to and convince others of the fact that there are absolutes, moral absolutes, and the failure to recognize and live according to them is going to to tear down and destroy a country to where there's absolutely nothing left. And I hate to be the bearer of sad tidings, but we have to live in light of where we are. But there is hope. There always is hope, and the hope is in the Word of God, just as ultimately 
uh, even though you had the breakdown in the time of the judges, guess what's around the corner historically? King David, Solomon. Uh, there, there were various cycles that went through those, the, the ancient kingdom of uh, the United Kingdom and also the kingdom of Judah. But constantly they're dealing with the issue of their sin nature that's coming along and wanting to impose uh, their own deity upon, uh, upon culture. So this is the problem. Gideon's failure is he's going to lead them right back into idolatry. And it, it, it didn't even last a generation. When Gideon died, we read at the end of chapter 8, then they are back into the same problem of being overrun by uh, enemy forces. So, And it falls apart. And then we go into chapter 9 where we deal with uh, Gideon's um, illegitimate son, Abimelech, and the destructiveness that comes from that. So this is the picture that is presented to us in Scripture, that when human beings think that they are the ultimate reference point and they have enough intellectual acumen to think that they can solve problems that only God can solve, such as climate change, problems that are not caused by man but are caused by cycles of, of uh, climate change. There's always climate change, and these cycles occur, but we have a, such a narrow window of actual measurement. Now, I know that there are ways of measuring and getting an idea of what happened in the past. We don't necessarily know how accurate all of those things are, I remember uh, 11 years ago. Anybody remember the drought of 2011? And Tommy Ice and I were laughing about it because he's always had a lot of connections. He grew up in Austin. A lot of his life was spent in Austin, and he's, he's a big fan of the University of Texas football, and so he's got a lot of things, and he pastored a church in Austin. And he was talking about how all the kids at University of Texas, all, all the um, climate change environmentalist kids at UT were just so depressed because there was uh, such a drought on Lake Travis that it was down 80 feet. And they were bemoaning this. Look at what we have done. How will, We will never recover from this. It's down 80 feet. You could walk across Lake Travis without getting your feet wet. And, and I laughed. I said, I remember as a camper at Camp Penal, four or five different summers, I could walk across Lake Travis without getting my feet wet. This is not the first time or the last time. And within about three years, there was such rainfall that, that uh, Lake Travis was uh, filled to overflowing. Uh, these are just the cycles that we have of weather. And we have to understand that there's an excellent science behind that. But when you believe in the modern version of the weather gods, uh, which have computers and, um, you know, an interesting thing came out uh, yesterday, and, um, and that was that there was a discovery that, that one of the researchers 
who had done a foundational research paper on Alzheimer's about 15 years ago. And it was discovered by several scientists and validated by a number of others that he falsified the images. He manipulated the images that were used to come to certain conclusions about how Alzheimer's developed in the brain and what was what was going on. And I texted that to Yufei. Um, and Yufei responded, he said, this is standard in the scientific community. He's pre-med at Rice. He said, this is so standard that so much research is falsified to get federal dollars and grant money that it can't real, a lot of it cannot be trusted, and it's distorted over the years. And I know from talking to Charlie Clough and others hearing lectures on this in terms of, of, of climate change, that this is what's happened. We have a system that if you want to get federal dollars, you have to get some kind of uh, extremely unusual theory, and then you've got to somehow uh, create some evidence that it might be true, and then you'll just attract hundreds of thousands of dollars to your project. And the more bizarre it is, the more you'll attract federal dollars. And so it's a systemic problem. But what, what's the root of it? a lack of integrity, a lack of morality, a lack of character. When we were here on Saturday morning and we had uh, these two individuals that were here, Alex Mueller, who was running for, who's running for county judge, and uh, who's the guy who was here, Uh, Kyle Scott, who was here for running for uh, county, county treasurer. And they were going through not in a, any kind of a even critical way. It was very interesting. I thought Kyle, Kyle Scott had a way of saying, well, I believe in this rather than that. And that that was always something that if you know what's going on, that's what's going on today. But he wasn't saying, okay, this is the county judge is now doing this, 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 or this. But it was a real exposure of, of a lack of integrity of hiding money, hiding expenditures, of spreading certain expenditures out, of not using money that was voted for certain things for those things and using it for woke projects. And what we see is in if that's happening in Harris County, that's happening in thousands if we, of other counties in this country. Uh, the, we have, when we have politicians that have no integrity, we can't trust them. And we have a culture that does not produce men and women of integrity anymore. We've had three generations of relativism. And that's exactly the kind of thing we see in, um, in this chapter. But God's grace is such, as I pointed out last time, that these, these leaders, flawed as they were, because they are products of that relativized uh, fertility-worshipping, arrogant culture, uh, they trusted God at a critical point in their life and the life of the nation, and it changed the course of history. And so you have these God, the Holy Spirit, listing Gideon and Barak and Samson and, and Jephthah and all of the things that they were able to do through faith by trusting God, not saving faith, but faith in the promises of God to lit, think and live a certain way. 
and they were able to uh, survive uh, military conflict when they were uh, overwhelmed by various odds and uh, bring victory to the people. But their freedom did not last long because when you have succumbed to moral relativism, you have enslaved yourself to the sin nature. And then you institutionalize the sin nature. And when the sin nature is in control, then you're going to have this explosion of mental attitude sins, which is exactly what we see in this passage, the mental attitude sins that lead to uh, overt sins. And it takes us as a foundation to the arrogant skills uh, that we have in uh, studied many, many times that in this orientation of the sin nature is self-absorption. It's all about me. It's not about you. It's all about me, and I have to be able to live my life the way I want it, be whoever I think I can be, whether I'm a man or a woman or one of the other 130 genders. And we're going to redefine gender, and we're going to redefine all these terms so that we can try to create our own reality. And self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. And we have perhaps arguably one of the most self-indulgent cultures that has ever existed in human history. And that leads to self-justification, creating rationales and intricate philosophical systems to justify and support uh, these aberrations. And so that even when you go to university, you are taught that all of these things that aren't true are actually true. And it is what Isaiah predicted, that there are those who are calling a good evil and evil good, just a reverse of polarity of right and wrong. And it leads to self-deception, so that people are so deceived they don't know that they're deceived. That's the danger. And then that leads to self-deification. They're just a little God, and this cycle just keeps going around and around and around. And we saw part of this as we ended last time at the first three verses of Judges 8, which is really brings the initial battle to its close, that the men of Ephraim have come. They, they did kind of a mopping up operation, but they were angry. Instead of rejoicing that they had victory, they were angry at Gideon because he did not call them to the battle initially, and they felt that they were uh, disrespected and they were belittled. And so we see it, it, Gideon rose to the occasion and handles them in a very uh, gentle and tactful way and showing some humility. And the result is that their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Their anger was that they thought they should have been given the honor and privilege of victory and of fighting in the battle. And so because they didn't get what they thought they were due, they were angry. This is what we will see happens in the remainder of chapter 8. So this next section is, I've called... Uh, through the first next five verses from um, um, verse 4 to verse 9, Sukkot, Penuel, and Gideon's anger, and the pursuit of Zeba and Zalmunna. That's this, this, uh, uh, this next sec- uh, section. 
And so what we see here is uh, that, that we got a glimpse of it with the episode with the Ephraimites is that because of self-absorption, you're going to have arrogance. And when you don't get your way in arrogance, it creates an opposite reaction on the other side and leads to divisiveness. And so the the tribes are really divided against each other, and they are filled with jealousy and resentment and hostility. And it has its roots in their rejection of God and their uh, self-deification. So arrogance always produces this kind of reaction, and it increases anger, hostility, division. You can go back to to Galatians chapter uh, 5, verse um, 19, 20, 21, where it lists the works of the flesh, and many of them relate to factions and divisiveness and anger, mental attitude, sins, and the consequences, and that's exactly what happens. When everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, this is an important principle. When everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, a marriage, a family, a state, or a nation will fragment. No group of people can survive arrogance. When arrogance is operational, then marriages don't survive, families don't survive, states don't survive, nations don't don't survive. And the only thing that restores it is a return to humility and a recognition that there are ex- external absolutes and that morality must be based on eternal absolutes or there won't be any stability uh, in the nation. So when we look at the beginning of this section, verse 4, we read, when Gideon came to the Jordan. Now, this shift occurs. We assume that he has, after having his meeting with the Ephraimites, uh, he then uh, organizes and reorganizes or regroups his um, 300, and they leave, and they begin to go in pursuit of a, another band, large band of uh, the Midianite coalition. And so here's the map. We're told in the verse, when Gideon came to the Jordan, so he's coming down from the north. The, ignore this. That comes up in the ninth chapter. You comes down this this blue line. You have the Jordan River that runs along here. This is the Jordan River Valley, and it's not marked very clearly. Here we go, right here. So they've crossed the Jordan. They are on the tr- east side of the Jordan, the Transjordan, and they've come down to the uh, uh, town of Sukkot. And Sukkot is a term that uh, means booths in Hebrew. And so when you come to the Feast of Booths in October, it's Sukkot, uh, same same word. And um, this area of Sukkot, uh, let me point out a couple of other things. These towns are going to be mentioned here. You have Sukkot, Penuel, and this river here is the Jabok River, or in Hebrew it would be the Yavok River. Uh, Yabok River. And so this is the direction that after 
Gideon has his harsh confrontation with the people in Sukkot. He's going to head up through the valley here of the Jabbok River, and he's going to go to Penuel, and then he will head south, chasing the Midianites down to Karkov, which Karkor, which is off the map. So uh, uh, this uh, village of Adam and the fords of the uh, Jordan is also mentioned in the text. But we know these places exist. We have historical and archaeological evidence, and so this supports at least the fact that uh, the geography is is correct. And uh, the text says that he's got the 300. Now, there are others who are other tribes that are uh, joining them, but it, at this point it's the, the 300 who are in pursuit, and they are wearily pursuing. The emphasis there is on wearily. They have been, uh, they were probably um, uh, had to form up around uh, one or two in the morning, and then they went down, uh, and they had to uh, approach the Midianite army in as much, with as much stealth as possible. They have the initial battle, which took place long before the sun came up, and they have been fighting all day long without sustenance. And so they, that's the point here, is they are weary and they are hungry and they have been, I mean, you can't imagine the calories you're burning when you're fighting and it's life or death at any moment. So this is a look from the west to the east and this water line going through the middle here, this is the, uh, uh, this is the, the Jordan River and you're, uh, looking uh, off to the area into Jordan, and uh, this is the area that goes up into the hills where uh, Penuel is located, and Sukkot is located right in this the Jordan River Valley where the arrow is. It is um, so it's part of the territory of the tribe of Dan, according to Joshua 13:27. Uh, it's three miles east of the Jordan River. And it's mentioned earlier in Genesis 32:30 uh, as a place that Jacob moved to after his encounter with God at Peniel. Genesis 32:30 says, "So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. He wrestled the angel of the Lord at at Peniel." He says, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. That's why Camp Penile was named Camp Penile. This is the, this is the verse. So that Camp Penile would be a place where children would come and they would, uh, learn about God and meet God face to face. Great application of that verse. So, verse five, Gideon politely requests some food for his troops. He says to the men of Sukkot, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmuda, kings of Midian. Now, what's interesting is Zeba's name, Zeba's name is from the verb Zabah, meaning, uh, Zabah meaning sacrifice or slaughter, and uh, that's that's clear. The second name, Zalmuna, uh, has this idea of shelter refuse. So there's an interesting play on words that's going on uh, on in the text. And the people of Sukkot are really rude. They don't want to 
give, give anything. And they say, well, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your possession? That's what they mean now in your hand. And the uh, fact is that the hands, they would, the, the way the pagans would operate is they would cut off the hands uh, in, instead of scalping like the Indians would do. And, of course, that started because the, the British or the French would pay a, uh, pay a certain amount for every American scalp that they brought in. That's how the practice got started. But that was a pagan kind of thing. And here it was cutting off the hands. And so the people of Sukkot said, well, you haven't won the victory. That's what they're saying. You already have their hands in your possession? Oh, really? You don't? Why should we give any bread to your army? In other words, they're operating on fear. They don't want the Midianite army to come back and punish them because they've aided Gideon and his 300. And so we see that they're still operating on pure paganism. There's no trust in the Lord. And they... Uh, refused even basic hospitality. In Middle Eastern hospitality is you always feed uh, somebody who is coming to your house. You always show that hospitality, but they don't do it. So Gideon responds in anger. He said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Now, I got a couple of pictures here that I think will show up fairly well. Some of you who've been to Israel have seen a couple of these plants, but it's as bad as West Texas. Everything is stickers. So this is just a picture of a huge sticker bush and another uh, sticker on flower that would, and that's what he's saying. You're just going to get all these, we're going to make whips of these things. But my favorite was a tree. I've only seen one of these trees. And this was a tree near the the Colosseum that was built by the by the Greeks in about the second century or so AD uh at Beit Shan. And this is you don't you, nobody could ever climb this tree. So this is what the tree looks like. And if you have good eyes, you can see along the trunk here all these little projections here. Those are thorns that are about this long, okay? And just in case you can't see that very well, I expanded it so that you could get a really good look at these these thorns. So that is not the kind of tree you're going to want to climb. But there are plenty of thorns and briars and thistles, and, of course, that always reminds us of what? That reminds us of Genesis chapter 3, that God says now the earth will bring forth thistles and thorns, and this is part of living in a corrupt world and on a corrupt planet. So then we're told that he and his 300 left there, and they're headed up into the... Uh, hills. This would be in modern Jordan today. From there to Penuel, and spoke to them in the same way. So, the men of Penuel are not being hospitable, and uh, they asked them for bread. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered, "We're not going to give you anything. We're not going to help you." So, the geography here is that they've come from the Jordan River. They've gone this way. This is where they believe Sukkot was located. 
and then going up this the Jabbok River Valley here, and this would be the location of uh, Pinuel and Mahanaim up in this this uh, rugged area here. And so this map this shows the uh, the route they took. They're seeking provision at Sukkot. They head up the River Valley to Penuel and still don't get anything. And then they head uh, to the southeast uh, to Karkor, which is where the Midianites have gone. This is what Penuel looks like. Uh, this is a, a hilltop where they believe the location for Penuel is located. This is looking at it from another uh, another direction. But it gives us an idea of how rugged the territory is and where Gideon was leading his his uh, 300. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, last year we went to the temple at Karnak, which has uh, this incredible wall of hieroglyphics where Shishak, the pharaoh, had recorded his uh, campaign up through, uh, up through uh, Israel. And so in this glyph and this glyph and this glyph are the glyphs for Penuel, Sukkot, and Adam, just attesting their existence and that um, he had gone in that particular area. Now, again... Gideon threatens them in anger because the men of Penuel would not help. And he came back and he said, when I, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower, the tower of, of the city. So then we shift to what's going on with the, with the Midianites. Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. So they started with how many? 135,000, and now they're down to what? Uh, They've got 120,000 men who had died, so all that's left is 15,000. So that's, that's a pretty good slaughter. So they have headed down this way. They came down to Sukkot. They went up the Jabbok River Valley. Then they went southeast down to Karkor. This map, topographical map here gives a uh, better view. So Karkar is over here. I believe this line here would be Iraq because everything east of the Jordan River, this is Jordan, and this would take us over into Iraq, and this area up here would be Syria. And this is what it looked like 100 years ago, uh, that area of Karkor. So in verse 11 and 12, we're told, And Gideon went up, the, up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Yogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. So again, he has a surprise attack on the 15,000 that are left. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian. Notice, these are kings of Midian, whereas Oreb... Uh, who was it uh, when we were in chapter 7? Oreb and Zeb were princes. These are uh, kings. He pursued them, took the two kings of Midian, Zeb and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Now, I wasn't sure how this map would show up, but it shows up better than I thought. This is another map. This is the Jordan River over here on the left. This is the uh, village of Adam. 
This is Sukkot up here, and the river Jabak and Penuel is located here. And then down here uh, is, uh, this is Amman, Jordan down here. And this, the Baka Valley here is uh, where they believe Karkar was located. So that, that's, that's the route. And then they come back, and this is the ascent of Harris, which is what the text, uh, the text talks about. So this gives us an idea of this particular area. And verse 13 says, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, uh, returned from the battle from the ascent of Harris. So it tells us his route. It's so precise. You don't find that kind of precision in other religious-type books of whatever, whether you're talking about religious books of Buddhism you certainly don't find that kind of precision in the Book of Mormon because nothing in the Book of Mormon ever ever existed. But here you have in the Scripture, this is the kind of thing that attests to its accuracy. It's, it's so precise, and we can go back and find these locations. 3,000, 3,500 years later, we can, st- we can find these locations. So this is the... Uh, route that he took going up by the ascent of Harris and back uh, back to the land or back to actually Sukkot and to Penuel where he will punish them. And in ver- so this shows the route, the return route coming back down. Uh, the, the, the ascent means if you're having to walk up from a lower elevation to a higher elevation. And so this uh, this is the walk up the escarpment there to the uh, higher level. So they return uh, to punish Sukkot. And we're told in verse 16, he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught them a lesson. He has them whipped. This is a brutal punishment, not according to the Mosaic law. So we see paganism slipping into their ideas of punishment. He tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. This is the word harag, which means to destroy, kill, murder, slay, or even uh, it's a broad meaning word. It even means to execute judicially. So he is punishing them because they fail to come to the aid of these are these are Jews who are living in Sukkot, Jews who are living in Penuel, they're the tribe of Dan, uh, I mean of Gad, and they refuse to come to the aid of the army that God has raised under Gideon. So they deserve this this uh, punishment. So that brings us to verse 18, to the next section, verses 18 down to 21. And this is where we see justice perverted. Uh, it's perverted into personal vengeance. And we, it's that always what happens when you get into a pagan environment where everything is all about the self. It's all about me. So justice is what is going to make my life better. It has nothing to do with uh, objective punishment for a crime. Judges 8, 18, we read, Then he, that's Gideon, said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men uh, were they whom you killed at Tavor? And they said, They were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. So they say it's, a, it's an uncanny resemblance. They all showed that family resemblance to Gideon. 
And so Gideon responds. He realizes they've killed his brothers. They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to uh, Yeter, or Jether, anglicized, his firstborn, said, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword. See, the problem is he's a youth. He's inexperienced. He doesn't uh, understand or, or he's not prepared for this particular task. It was a foolish choice, which, as we'll see, violated uh, the Mosaic law. And uh, Zeba and Zalmunna then taunt Gideon, say, rise up and fall on us for uh, as the man, so is his strength. So if you're really as tough as you say you are, that kind of an idea, then you would carry it out yourself. So Gideon uh, killed Zeba and Zalmunna. But then he does something that reveals a, pagan, a very pagan mindset, that the, the customs of these um, these foreigners was that it, you would plunder, and that would show that you were the, not only the victor and the conqueror, but you were worthy of, of being a king. It, it is, it's a subtle act. And, and see, when we talk about worldliness, one of the ways in which worldly thinking is manifest is in certain customs of any culture that manifests it. So we may have customs and our country that have really become uh, somewhat paganized. So he's taking these, notice, crescent ornaments, which are on the camel's necks. What does the crescent remind you of? It reminds you of the moon. It also reminds you of the moon god from uh, the uh, various uh, uh, 360 deities of the uh, Arabs, the moon god was Allah, and he was symbolized by a crescent, uh, crescent moon. And so uh, this is representing the, the moon deity at that time was a goddess. So this is uh, just some samples of things that have been uh, discovered, recovered in, in archaeology. And the basic question that... Uh, Gideon was asking them was about whom they killed at Tavor. So that's Mount Tavor. Remember, it wasn't far from the battlefield. And somehow they had managed to come onto Gideon's family and they had uh, wiped out his brothers. They had uh, uh, murdered them. And so in the verses 19 through 21, then we have uh, the attempt then to get his son to execute them but the the boy isn't mature enough. He hasn't been trained, and so um, he won't do it. And what the author is doing here is he's sort of shifting our sympathy to the Zeba and Zalmuna, and uh, so really giving the task to the young boy was was uh, sort of smacked of a Canaanite initiation rite. And Deuteronomy 19.21 says, You shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That is what should be emblazoned over the execution chambers in every penitentiary. Because the focus is on what they did to their victim, not on the criminal. 
And what happens when we coddle criminals is that we ignore what they have done to their victims. And we have to have justice for victims. This leads to Gideon's failure. Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Well, we don't know how large this delegation of men of Israel were, but that phrase is used to describe the leaders of a town or, or city. And they come to him, and it's interesting that they don't use a word like king or a word for ruling built off of the noun for king, but they use the word mashal, which is often used of a, it can be used of a tyrannical rule, and uh, but it generally has that sense of being being a ruler. And they want him to establish a dynasty, both you and your son and your grandson, because you saved us, literally. Yasha is the verb that's there. You delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon says, and this is the high watermark of Gideon's life. And he says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So he is once again rising to the challenge and applying the word to the situation. And he says that he will not rule. He refuses the accoutrements of of rulership, however, doesn't last long. We read in verse, um, we read in verse twenty-four. Gideon said to them, "Then I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil." So they've got all this plunder, and they are to bring just one earring. They have so much that just by each bringing one earring, he's going to be able to create this golden ephod. An ephod is a priestly garment. So he said, just give me an earring from the, from the spoil, for they had gold earrings uh, because they were Ishmaelites. So some of the Midianites were from the descendants of Ishmael. And they said, we shall surely give them. So they spread out a garment. And every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings uh, that he requested was 1,700 uh, shekels. And I failed to check that out as to how much that weight was today, but I'll, I'll, I'll get that. It was several hundred pounds of, of, uh, of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian. So they had quite a, a haul of jewelry. And then verse 27, we see Gideon's fall. Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot. What that means is it's using the, the, the literal term for uh, physical adultery, but it is using it with the uh, metaphorical meaning of unfaithfulness because God is the one they are to worship. And so when they don't worship God, they're committing spiritual adultery. You cannot commit spiritual adultery in any other way other than by worshiping something other than God. That's the biblical definition of spiritual adultery. 
We saw that last week when I was talking about uh, worldliness in James 4.4, adulterers and adulteresses. Uh, Don't love the world, for anyone who loves the world is at enmity with God. Judges 8.28 then says, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so they lifted their heads no more, and the, Gideon, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So they lifted their heads no more. We never hear about the Midianites again. This is a definitive defeat by Gideon and, of course, by God. But when he, we read this about him establishing his ephod for them to worship, it's idolatry. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. It's a trap. And this is the same word that's used, if you remember, back in Judges 2-3, where uh, God says to Israel, I will not drive out all of these people uh, before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So Gideon is fulfilling the prediction in Judges 2-3. And then he goes to his own house, And we're told that Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. He's acting like a pagan. He doesn't just, he's not a monogamist. He has many, many wives, many, many children, because that shows that you have power in the uh, ancient pagan world. And he then also had a concubine in Shechem and bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. Now, this is the irony in all of this, and most people miss it because they don't know Hebrew. Av is the Hebrew word for father, the A-B. The I on the end means is a first-person suffix. Avi is my father. Av is father. The diminutive is Abba. So Av is father. Avi is my father. Melech is king. So he names his son, my father is king. Oh, no, 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 no. I won't be king. My son won't be king. My grandson won't be king. But I'll name my king, my son, my father is king. Everybody will get the point. So we see what happens. He gets confidence in God, and then he loses his focus. He reverts to paganism and... Eventually, he uh, has this illegitimate son, Abimelech, and that's going to be the focus of chapter 9 and the destruction that Abimelech brought into the culture of Israel. So the next verse says, So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal berit their God. And so I'll stop there because we need to come back, clean up a few things at the end of the chapter, and we will then get into the whole bizarre episode at Shkem. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together and study these things, to see what happens in a culture that has imploded based on arrogance and what happens when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, when everyone is seeking to be their own little God, that there's no basis for integrity anymore. There's no basis for morality. It leads to uh, unethical practices in business, 
in government, in education, uh, in relationships, and it can only last so long before the whole system implodes. Father, we pray that your grace would intervene in our culture and that there would be uh, grace given to us, that there would be uh, young men who would be raised up to be evangelists and pastors, and that you would also uh, raise up believers who have true moral and spiritual courage uh, to proclaim your word uh, to everyone from the lowest a socioeconomic rung all the way up to the top because only your word has the transformative power to make a difference. And we trust in you for whatever happens. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.